Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Okay, we are now live. All right, Daniel chapter 4 is where we're going to be tonight. So I want to give you guys, I've done a lot of funerals and memorial services over the years at this church since I've been here 18 years, but I want to give you what ABC News and other media outlets have reported is the most popular song sung at funerals. I'm going to give you the lyrics, okay? So this is the most popular song according to statistics, funeral homes, news reports, of what American people want expressed when they die. So here's the the lyrics to the songs. And now the end is near, so I face the final curtain. My friends, I'll say it clearly. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. Regrets I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it. My way. Okay. So Frank Sinatra's I did it my way. That's that's kind of amazing, but not surprising. We live in a me-centered world where when people have their funerals, they want to say, I did it my way. It was all about me. I'm the center of attention. I did it my way. I am in charge. I am in control. Everything centers around me. Now, that could be the theme song of King Nebuchadnezzar. I did it my way. Okay, over the past few weeks, I know last week we didn't look at it because I wasn't here, we've been looking at this king, Nebuchadnezzar, this imperial monarch of the Babylonian Empire, if you will, and we've been asking the question all the way back to the indoctrination technique of chapter one where he tried to indoctrinate the young men, to the issue of the golden statue and then erecting the statue to himself. The question we've got to ask is, is this king going to truly repent and bow the knee to the God of heaven, Yahweh, the Lord? He's never said from his own mouth, my God, my Lord. It's always been, it's Daniel's God. It's these three men's God. Now, remember, he was sort of moved by the fiery furnace we saw last time. He was kind of surprised. He was shocked. Kind of a religious experience. So here's what we understand about the king. He was under conviction but did not experience conversion. So let me just ask you a question theologically. Can somebody come and sit in a worship service and be under strong preaching and be convicted by the Holy Spirit, but never truly come to Christ. Yes. There's a lot of people that may do that. So, here's the question we're going to ask tonight. What is the fate of this megalomaniac of a king? Will he finally surrender to the living God? Show the... Okay. Sorry. Mal- way of pronouncement or edict of a king that God has done great signs and wonders. And so this is on the trail, this is on the heels of chapter 3, where God saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. And it may look like, at first glance, the king is on God's side, that he has, he's worshiping God. 
that maybe this is a testimony of praise. He's, account, he's, he's basically recounting what God has done for him. Now, we're not really sure exactly when this pronouncement was made, but a lot of scholars believe that this may have been near the end of the king's life, when Daniel's around 50 years old. So remember, how old was Daniel and the three boys when they were brought from Judah to Babylon? Probably what, we said maybe 15, 16? Okay, so this is many years later. So, so chapter 4 is the very last time we're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. So this is kind of the very last chapter of his life. And so as we explore this tonight, we're going to see four aspects of the life of King Nebuchadnezzar, or four scenes or four sections of his life tonight in chapter 4. And so we really got to kind of get closure on this king, because this is the last time he shows up in the book of Daniel. So let's look at the first thing that we see tonight. Similar to chapter 2, this king is still living in an illusion, okay? Let's see how he's living. He's living a life of ease and comfort, but it's, but it's an illusion. So let's, let's read verses 4 through 9. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Okay, let's just stop right there. Notice how Nebuchadnezzar describes himself in verse four. I was living in ease and prosperity. I'm living on easy street. I have the hanging gardens of Babylon. I have all of this luxury. Now, there's a word play in the original language. When it says there, I was prospering in my palace, it's interesting because the word prospering means luxuriant, tall, lush, like a growing tree. Now, at first glance, this may not mean much to you, but it'll make sense in just a moment. He's, pros he's sprouting like this growing, thriving tree, a luxurious tree. It'll show up again. So remember in chapter two, he had a dream. What was the dream in chapter two? This head of gold and then this body and then this, all the different nations coming after him and then this big stone coming and crushing him. And basically Daniel said, you know, your kingdom's going to come to an end and you're, you're, you're going to be destroyed by another nation. And so he has another dream and he's alarmed. He's afraid. And what does he do? Does he remember what happened back in chapter 2 when he was alarmed by a dream? What's the first thing he does? He's already seen Daniel interpret the dream back in chapter 2. He's already seen the three men rescued from the fiery furnace. 
And now in the midst of the lap of luxury, he has another dream. And what does he do? So what I want to, us to do under this big heading of him living in an illusion, I want us to see three things under this big heading related to how he's still living in a life of illusion. And, and this is baffling to me, but it, but it makes sense if you're unregenerate and you're still caught up in pride and you are the most powerful man in the world. Number one, he doesn't consult Daniel first to interpret the dream. Did you notice that? Who does he bring in first? The magicians, the astrologers, the enchanters. All of these pagan leaders, actually occultic people, to come in and interpret the dream. So is he, he's still kind of a practical atheist. Like I'm not going to bring in Daniel, who I know had interpreted the dream the first time. I'm going to bring in these other guys. And it, it wasn't that he didn't know that Daniel couldn't, he knew Daniel could interpret dreams. He knew these things. But he's living in defiance or in blindness. Something in him is causing him not to reach out to Daniel first, even though he's already had experience with Daniel interpreting the dream back in chapter 2. So that's the first thing. He brings in all the astrologers. Second thing, which is very interesting, he calls Daniel by his pagan name, Belteshazzar. Now, remember in chapter 1, I know it was many weeks ago, in that indoctrination that Babylon, when, the, when he brought the, the four boys to Babylon, he changed their names. He took their Hebrew Israelite names and gave them pagan names. And so he's still kind of playing a game here by saying, oh, you're not a Jewish young man. You are Belteshazzar. And notice what he says about it. It's named after his God. So if you look there in verse 8, at last came in before me he whose name Belteshazzar after the name of my God, lowercase g, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. So he doesn't call Daniel in first. And then when he does call Daniel in, he calls him by the name that he had changed under that three-year indoctrination period. And then number three, he calls on Daniel instead of calling upon God. That's the main thing. He never directly prays to the God of heaven and says, Lord Yahweh, God of heaven, would you please help me interpret this dream? He goes directly to Daniel because he wants the guru. He wants the holy God. Notice what he says. In him, he's got the spirit of the gods. This guy's got mojo. This guy's got something. He's, he's got a direct connection to God. And so if I can go to him... Maybe his quote-unquote anointing or his um, special sensitive spirituality will rub off on me, but I'm not going to go directly to God. And I've seen this many times in ministry. Uh, oftentimes in ministry as a pastor, people want, for lack of a better term, they want a holy man or they want a priest or they want like a spiritual therapist to answer all their problems. And instead of going directly to God, they want to come to a man and get help from a human because they think somehow another person can help them with their problems. And so um, here's something that you need to know about pastoral ministry, okay? So if you ever come and come and sit down with me and, and you want counsel and you want help, I will say this to you. I cannot fix you, okay? That's not my job. I can listen to you. I can pray for you. I can counsel you. But the only one that can fix you is Jesus. 
And so my job as your pastor is to lead you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus as the one who can do that. And so this is really kind of what sets Protestant evangelicals above other belief systems because like in other belief systems, they believe you have to go through a priest or an intermediary to get to God. And we obviously know what we believe is that you can go directly, all believers can go directly to God with our prayers, with help. We don't have to go through another person. We can go to Christ himself. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says this, let us, in Hebrews 4.16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you read between the lines here, what you're seeing is that really Daniel's a last resort. I'm going to bring my gurus in, my astrologers in, and if they can't help me, oh yeah, that guy Daniel, he's got the mojo. He's got something spiritual about him. I'll bring him in. But the, the first thing the king should have been thinking is what? Wow, I just saw God save these three men out of the fiery furnace. That God's powerful. Maybe I should pray directly to that God and ask him for help. But he doesn't do that. So the first big thing we see here is that he is living a life of ease. He's living a life of illusion. And he's basically a practical atheist. Now, let me just ask you a question. Does this kind of bother you that he's seen all these things and yet he's not been moved? I mean, we've seen three chapters. Chapter two, dream interpreted. Wow. Chapter 3, men saved from the fiery furnace. Wow. Chapter 4, it's like, no, no, that ever happened. I'm just going to kind of go back to life as usual. Do you know of people who may be ambivalent to the things of God? Now, what does ambivalent mean? I could kind of care less. It doesn't really matter to me. Now, in our culture today, okay, there are two responses to Christ that you're going to see, okay? We, don't, we no longer live in a neutral world. We live in a world that is hostile to Christianity. So you're going to see these two responses. When you live for Christ, and when you, this is not in your notes, so you may want to write this down. I'll write these down for us. So you're going to see two responses. The first response is ambivalence. People will be ambivalent. They just don't care. No, I don't care. It's your religion. It's your relationship with Christ. You do, you do you, me do me. If it works for you, that's great. Just don't push it down my throat. I don't really care what you believe. I don't really care. But what we're seeing more common now is not ambivalence, but antagonistic. People are antagonistic. What does antagonistic mean? They're hostile. They're hateful. They don't want to hear it. They want to persecute you. They don't want to hear it at all. They get angry. They get mad. It's not I don't care. It's I want you to shut up and you don't have the right to say that. So, so we need to be prepared that you're going to see both these responses. when you. And let's just, do you guys acknowledge that? You see those two responses of people out there, ambivalence and antagonistic. Okay. There's some people you talk to, I could care less. There's other people it's like, don't you dare come with me with Christianity because you're already, you're already setting me off. Okay. We just need to be prepared that when we deal with non-Christians, those are going to be some of the responses that people are going to have towards us. We just need to be prepared for that. And so what we really need to be is, I'm going to talk a little bit about this Sunday, we need courage and clarity when it comes to the gospel. We need courage and clarity. 
We need to be bold and we need to be clear. We don't need to be cowards that back down. And when we speak, we need to be very clear to make sure there's no mistaking what we actually believe. And that's hard in today's culture, especially when people are antagonistic. It's hard to be courageous and it's hard to be clear. Because what happens when you're clear? What do people say when you're very clear about the Christian faith? What do people say? That's hateful. That's intolerant. You're being judgmental. And then if you're, if you're clear, then, the, then you, if people have that response to the clarity, then you don't want to be courageous. You just want to be like, okay, I'm not going to say anything because the moment I open my mouth and I'm clear, then I'm automatically going to lose that courage. So in today's world, we need, we're going to face ambivalence and antagonism. We need courage and clarity. That was extra for your teaching tonight. I didn't plan. So yes, you can stop me, Brent. Well, I was just going to say that you have to remember that the antagonistic and ambivalence is towards God. It's mm-hmm. towards God. It's towards God. Jesus said, if they hated me, they hated you. Now, you may be the target of their ire because you're the messenger. Like, don't shoot the messenger. But it's, it's really the message that they're against in, in Christ behind it. Okay? So, but that's where the king's at. He's kind of ambivalent. Kind of a functional atheist at this time. Daniel's my last resort. I've seen all this miraculous stuff happen, and I, and I don't really, it doesn't really move me. I don't really care. I'll, I'll consult my astrologers. If they don't help me, I'll consult Daniel. If he doesn't help me, then, you know, I, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the most powerful man in the world, so pretty much I can do what I want. That's kind of his attitude. Now, the second thing, so that's the first thing we see tonight, is he's still living in illusion. He's living in life of ease. He's a practical atheist. He, he, he has no clue of the, of the living God at this point. Now, let's look at the second big thing tonight, and that's the dream itself. What is this dream? Okay. Remember when I said the word prosperous meant a towering, luxurious tree? Let's read the dream itself. So this this takes up a large portion of chapter 4. So, here we go, verse 10. He's going to tell the dream to, to Daniel. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end of that living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives to it whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Okay, let's stop right there. Under this heading of the dream itself, I want us again to see three things 
about this dream. First, the towering tree reaching toward heaven is another illusion of the Tower of Babel, just like the golden statue was Tower of Babel. Now remember, what is the king thinking about himself? He is inflated with pride, and so in chapter 3, he wants to build a tower to himself. And so what the king wants to do, and this is what keeps going, Daniel keeps hearkening us back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Because where did the king erect that statue? On the plain of Shinar, where the Tower of Babel was built. So wherever the king, the king has a fascination with Babel. And that's, what's Babylon named after? Babylon is named after Babel. It comes from the same place. So in Genesis 11:4, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The king is trying to reincarnate Babel. So in his dream, he sees this great luxurious tree. And what, ha- what is this tree doing? It's giving shade to everybody. It's giving protection. It's giving shade. The animals are coming under it. The trees uh, giving, the birds are, are there. It's giving fruit. It's this prosperous, growing, tall tree. It's really a symbol of his pride. Because what happens in the, in the dream? Chop it down. So the tree is a symbol, again, of his pride. The way that the golden statue in chapter 3 was about his pride. Now, what does the Bible say about pride? I'm glad you asked. You didn't really, but... I'm going to tell you anyway. What does the Bible say about pride? Let's, there's a lot of Proverbs, but let's just, let me just give you a litany here of, of verses that talk about pride. Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. This is God speaking. God hates pride and arrogance. Okay, Proverbs 11.2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. With pride comes disgrace. Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Abomination, that's a strong word, isn't it? Abomination, that means something that God hates. God absolutely hates pride and arrogance. Proverbs 16, 18, we know this one. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Okay, that's just some Proverbs. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let, the not, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Don't boast in your wealth, your riches, or your power. God hates pride. All right. Now, let's keep reading the dream. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. 
Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were bountiful and its fruit abundant, and in which food was for all, and under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. <coughs> your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from that time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All right. The second thing we see in this passage of Scripture is the king is given a clear warning to repent. Now, how do you see that? What are these watchers, maybe angels or something that he sees in the dream, that warn him, this is going to be cut down. This tree is going to be cut down. And so there's a warning there in verses 25 and 26. It says, You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, to, so that you may know that the king, Most High rules the kingdom of heaven, I mean, kingdom of men, and gives it to all whom he will. Okay. This was a warning to the king in the dream. You better wake up fast, Mr. Nebuchadnezzar. You are going to be chopped down metaphorically like this tree is being chopped down, and you're going to be humiliated. And so you need to repent quickly of your pride. Now, oftentimes in the Bible, God gives people an opportunity to repent before he brings judgment. How many years did Noah build the ark? 120 years. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? If you can find so many righteous people, I, I, I won't bring down fire. Nineveh, 40 more days. And this place is toast. Repent. So God does... The dream itself is an opportunity to repent. Okay, that, that's the point. The dream itself is a warning to the king that you need to repent of your 
pride because if you don't, this is what's going to happen to you. And so we find from Romans chapter 2, Paul says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each one according to his works. God's kindness is not meant for you to continue to sin. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repent. God is giving the king a warning. There's time to repent of your arrogance, of your pride. The dream itself is a warning. It's a wake-up sign, king. So, let's just talk about repentance for a moment. What does the king need to do? The king needs to repent of idolatry and arrogance and pride. So, let's talk about repentance. What is the nature of this repentance? What is he supposed to do? Daniel's very specific in what the king's supposed to do. Do you see it in verse 27? What does is, what is Daniel tell him? Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. And here's what he tells him to do. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. There's the specific call to repent. Break off your sins, break off your iniquities, show mercy to the oppressed. Daniel warns the king that you've been oppressive to the poor. True repentance doesn't just mean, hey, I'm sorry that I did this. True repentance is a fruit of faith. True repentance is a fruit of the Holy Spirit working in you, and it actually shows up in demonstrable behavior. So the word there to break off, he says there in verse 27, break off your sins. It's, it's a good translation, ESV. It's, it's an image of a yoke placed around your neck. And this yoke is weighing you down in sin. And you, you abandon it. You take off the yoke. You get rid of the sin. It reminds me of Zacchaeus. Remember what Zacchaeus, the wee little man? And a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. You guys remember that song from the kid? So he was a wee little man. And Jesus saved him by grace alone. And after Jesus saved him and came to his house and transformed Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus demonstrated true repentance. And notice the nature of Zacchaeus' repentance in Luke 19, 8-10. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, we need to be careful with the Zacchaeus passage. Zacchaeus is not saved because he gave money back to the poor. That's evidence that he was saved. You're not saved by works, but when you repent and, and you repent with concrete action, change of life, that's evidence of salvation in you. So repentance is, a, is, a, is an inward sorrow for sin, an inward change of mind that leads to a transformed life, and a changed life. But I want you to notice what Daniel says to the king. At that last verse there in 27, 
there may perhaps be a lengthening to your prosperity. Even if the king repents, is God obligated to lengthen his prosperity? Perhaps. There's another perhaps related to repentance that 2 Timothy 2.25. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Here's the point about repentance. If anyone is to truly repent, God must sovereignly work in the heart to bring about this change. You, in and of yourself, can't repent because you're dead in sin. God has to birth that repentance in you. Now, let me just give you some definitions of repentance. This is from our statement of faith. So when you, when anybody ever says the LBC or the 1689, you're like, what's the 1689? What's the LBC? What's a manual statement of faith? Okay, the, the full thing is the 1689 is the year it was drafted. So our confession's old. Second London Baptist Confession or the London Baptist Confession. So this was framed by the British or English Baptists back in the 1600s. They borrowed a lot from the Westminster Confession, which is what the Presbyterians hold to. And this is our statement of faith that stood the test of time that gives us some great theology. And so in chapter 15, which is, a, is the chapter on repentance, to life and unto salvation, paragraph three gives a very good definition of repentance. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person being made, whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin does by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. Now, I know that's a, that's, a, that's a mouthful there. But basically what repentance is, is the Holy Spirit humbles you inwardly with a godly sorrow. You hate that sin. You're sorrowful for that sin. You cry out to the Lord to save you and to give you grace. And when he comes and changes you, that grace enables you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. Now, repentance doesn't save you. You're not saved by how much you repent. Repentance is a fruit of what God does in your life. So, John Calvin and his Christian Institutes, um, actually, I call it Christian Institutes of the Christian Religion, the Institutes, he gives a couple of good definitions. So, here's, here's one definition. He calls it a real conversion of our life unto God, proceeding from sincere and serious fear of God. So repentance means you have, you've come to the point where you have a sincere and serious understanding of your sin before a holy God. And you know that he has every right to punish you. And you come under strong conviction, and then it's a real conversion. There's real change that happens. And then here's another definition from Calvin. An internal renovation of mind, bringing with it a true amendment of life. That's probably a very succinct definition. The word repent means to have a change of mind. So repent means an internal change of mind about who I am and about who God is that leads to a changed life. And then Thomas Watson, one of my favorite Puritans, he wrote a great book on the doctrine of repentance. 
He says this, Repentance is the grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. And so what Daniel is saying to the king is, if you're going to truly have a repentance, it's got to show itself in some real concrete action here in how you deal with sin. You've got to break off your sin. You've got to break off your iniquity. That's there in verse 27. You've got to stop oppressing the poor. You need to start showing justice. There needs to be some changes in your life. Now, repentance is something that God has to give you the same way that God has to give you faith. Acts 5, 30 through 31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God has to give you the repentance. to. So here's the point. If you're going to repent, God's got to give that to you. You just can't repent in and of yourself because you're dead in sins. God's got to give you that repentance in your heart. Acts 11, 17 through 18. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that could stand in God's way, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has granted that repentance. So, here's the point. The dream itself was a call to repent. It was a warning. The king needed to specifically repent of his sins. It was a wake-up call. If not, it would be chopped down. His, his, his kingdom would be taken away. Now, Here's the third thing that we see. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take the warning seriously to repent. And he doesn't do it immediately. What does it say there? The text tells us he went a whole year in luxury and ease. I'm trying to find out where that verse is. You guys see that? Am I just making that up or did I see it somewhere? You guys see that? It was a whole year? It says 12 months later. Yeah, 12, where, what, what verse is that? 28. Okay, okay, yeah, I haven't gotten there. Okay, <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet. I'm like, I know I, I, know I see this. So we, yeah, we haven't gotten there yet. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. Okay, yeah, at the end of 12 months. So it doesn't happen immediately. He doesn't repent immediately. So it takes, thanks, Jennifer, 12 months before this dream actually comes true. Now, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What does he do when he gets the dream? Okay. So you're telling me, Daniel, it's me. I'm the tree that I'm going to be cut down and I'm going to have to eat. I'm going to have dew and eat grass and act like an animal. Okay. Great. Thanks, Daniel. What does the king do? That's never going to happen to me. I'm the king. He maybe have gotten it wrong. Now, how stubborn do you have to be? He already had the first dream back in chapter 2 of the, the rock coming and crashing him down. He's seen... Daniel's three friends saved from the fiery furnace. Daniel has told him in very graphic terms, you are this towering tree 
that give shade to everybody. This is your kingdom, and it's going to be chopped down unless you repent. It's a warning king to repent immediately. And what does the king do? The king goes on his merry way and says, oh, it's never going to happen to me. In the proverbial words of Pink Floyd, he has become comfortably numb. He doesn't care. I'm numb to the repentance and to the warning. Okay? So, the first, go ahead. I, I guess I didn't see it quite like that. I was thinking of the kings in the Old Testament that would say, um, they, the, uh, a prophet would come to them, I was thinking like this, would say, well, you're going to have this happen. And then they would repent. And they would, it wouldn't happen. And they'd say, oh, it's not happening in my lifetime. So, well, this is a pagan king, so he has no experience no, with I mean, the God of the Israel. No, but I mean just the natural concept of saying, well, in my lifetime it's going to be okay yeah. because he was told. Yeah, maybe this is a prophecy about a few, like way down the road, Babylon way down the road, is, but it's not me. Yeah. Maybe when Daniel said it's you, it's like, okay, maybe your sons or whatever, not me specifically. Yeah. So, all right, so let's actually, so let's ask the question before you even read further. Does the dream come true? And how do we know it comes true? Go back up to verse 24. This is the interpretation of king. It is the decree of the Most High which has come upon the Lord my king. Yeah, this is a decree by God. If you don't repent, it's going to happen. Okay, so the third major issue I want us to see tonight is the actual humiliation itself. Okay, so we've seen the dream. We, we know what the, the dream's not that hard to interpret. Big towering tree, this lush tree, this tree represents Babylon, the king. He's got an expansive kingdom. He provides shade for everyone. He's the top dog. And then these watchers come, angels or whatever, and says, chop it down. It gets chopped down to the stump. The trees get stripped. And then there's this prophecy about eating grass and all this kind of weird stuff. So let's read humiliation. My former pastor used to say this, better to be humbled now than to be humiliated later. <laughs> Better be humbled now than humiliated later. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Where's the king? He's on the roof of his palace. And let's just ask, metaphorically, where are his eyes? Where are his eyes? Where are his eyes focused? Me, I did it my way. Look what I've built. Look who I've become. Can you picture it in your mind? He's out there standing on the top of this palace, and he's looking as far as you can see, and he's thinking to himself, this is my kingdom. This is my domain. 
Look what I have accomplished. I'm the top dog. I'm the king. I'm this towering tree that's providing, you know, refreshment and shade for everyone. I am the ultimate be-all, end-all. So he's strutting around on the top of his palace, basically saying, look what I've built. And he built a lot of impressive things. I mean, ancient Babylon was one of the seven wonders of the world. You've heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Now, what you may not know is that Babylon was surrounded by massive walls that were 40 feet high and 21 feet thick. And as you entered, there was the Ishtar Gate. So this was an impressive thing that he had built. There were also these ziggurats. You guys know what a ziggurat is? It's kind of like a pyramid type thing. 288 feet tall, ziggurat. 50 temples were built under him. It was also said that Nebuchadnezzar probably had three palaces. At the time, it was the largest, most impressive, richest civilization that the world knew at that time. And what does he say? It's my glory. It's my majesty. It's my power. Look what I've done. Look what I have built. It's almost like he's praying to himself. Isn't that kind of weird? Like, like, look at the language that he's saying to himself. In verse 30, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal presence and for the glory of my majesty? These are words you, like, the Psalms attribute to God. Glory, majesty, power. Like, these are words that we attribute to God, and he's talking about himself. He does not remember Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. He has a very short memory. And he doesn't remember back from chapter 2. So turn back to chapter 2 for just a moment. What did he already hear Daniel say to him back in chapter 2? Chapter 2, verse 21. The first time that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. This is talking about God, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Nebuchadnezzar, the only reason you're king is because God has ordained you to be king. It's not because of what you've done. It's because God has ordained it. You're in this position because God has ordained for you to be in this position. And notice the, like, the literary device there. Look at verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth. Like he's still like, he's like still praising himself. And while these words are going, a voice from heaven comes what? Immediately he gets disciplined judged, and the dream comes true. What does the voice say from heaven? This is like God speaking directly to him. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Your tree has been chopped down. You've lost. You didn't repent. I'm going to immediately discipline you. I'm going to take away your kingdom. And not only that, I'm going to humiliate you, King. Now, what is this humiliation? Did you see it? I mean, it was already talked about in the dream. It's very strange. Verse 32. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. Okay, you're not even going to live in your palace. You're going to go out and live with, you're going to go out and live with the cattle. And what are you going to do? You're going to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. 
and you're going to get wet with dew, and you're going to get long hair, and you're not going to cut your nails, and basically you're going to live like an animal. God's going to humble him or actually humiliate him in the most graphic of ways. He's going to strip him of everything. You're not even going to live in a house and eat normal food. You're going to be living out in the pasture. I mean, we know what pastures are out here. You're going to be living out with the cattle, eating grass like a cow. Now, think about that, okay? Your family's driving their chariot down the road, and they see this weird dude over there eating grass. They're like, oh, wait, wow, that's the king. Now, how humiliating would that be? You're the top dog that everybody looked to, and now you're out with the cows eating grass. Now, why, why, is, he, why is this? Why humiliated to act like an animal? Well, there's something more going on here. I find it interesting that he is acting like an animal, for that is what has been happening inside of him all this time. He has been acting like a stubborn donkey this whole time. Remember in chapter 3 how wrathful and vengeance and, and he's like snorting his nose like a horse? He is acting, for lack of a better term, pardon the French, he's acting like a jackass, okay? That's what he's acting like. And basically God says, if that's the way you're, if you're going to be a stubborn donkey, then I'm going to make you act like a stubborn donkey. I'm going to make you eat grass. And I'm going to show you what your stubbornness is going to do. Now, this is a, we don't know exactly what this is, but let me give you some medical things that maybe this could be. Obviously, God is behind it. But there's a phenomenon described as lycanthropy, lycanthropy, or wolfman syndrome. In medical terms, it's where people believe they're animals. There's a delusion that you're a wolf, which brought about the ancient superstition of, of the werewolf. Now, let me give you some little background. In 1946... There was a Dr. Harrison who was a British doctor, and he worked in mental institutions all throughout England. And he had people that wandered the grounds eating grass like a cow and had long hair and fingernails like what you see with King Nebuchadnezzar. So here's the point. The burden is not to explain to us the medical situation that, that happened here. I mean, we can think that this is very strange. We, we don't fully understand it. One thing we know is that God ordained this to happen, and it was from him. It was a direct punishment from God to Nebuchadnezzar. You did not repent, and so you're going to act like an animal. Now, the difficulty is, is that the Aramaic text here, remember Daniel's written in Hebrew and Aramaic, it says a period of sevens. Okay? Now, what's a period of sevens? Is it seven days? Seven years. Is it seven months? Is it seven weeks? Is it seven years? The text is somewhat ambiguous. The traditional interpretation that most people have come down upon, we can't be dogmatic on this, but the traditional most scholars come down that it was seven years. That's a long time. Seven years. Now, at this time, the Bible doesn't say who's in charge. I'm sure his cabinet or his high officials had a plan in place. And I'm sure Daniel was instrumental because he was appointed as one of the higher people there. Whether We really don't know. What's significant, though, is the number seven. You, this is a 
in apocalyptic literature, both in Old Testament and New Testament, seven is a number of completeness, meaning that this is God's ordained time. Whether it's seven months, seven years, it's God's ordained allotted time, nothing less, nothing more, the specific time that God is going to judge Nebuchadnezzar, and it's a complete time. It, the point is it's God's timing. It's God's determination. When God said it's complete, it's complete. God's in charge of the discipline. God's in charge of the time. God is sovereignly working out his decree in this king by disciplining him. Now, this is the ultimate degradation when you think about it. The world's wealthiest, most powerful man eats grass in a field like a cow. Now, is this where the story ends? It'd be very sad if that's where it ended. So let's look at the final thing tonight. And thankfully, the fourth major issue we must understand is the king's transformation. Where have his eyes been all this time? On himself. Very important. Where have his eyes been? Look at me. Look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I've built. Everything's about me. Everybody look at me. I'm going to erect a statue to myself. I am the center of attention. So I want you to notice eyes. Let's read verse 34 through the end. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, that he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, before we just dive into this, do you just see a transformation in the king? Do you see a change? Do you see repentance? Okay. The first thing we see is his eyes are lifted to heaven. This is the turning point. No longer are his eyes fixed on himself. No longer are his eyes on his empire. But finally, after all this, he surrenders and fixes his eyes where they needed to be all the time, above, on the God of heaven. And so through God's grace, he comes to his senses. God said, okay, the seven periods, whatever that period of time, it's over. I'm going to return you to your senses. Think about what would happen when King Nebuchadnezzar like, wakes up, or God wakes him up, and he looks around, he's like, dude, I got long hair, I got long nails, and I've been eating grass. What's going on? It's very similar to the prodigal son. You remember, what, like, I came to my senses. God woke me up and brought me to my senses. Remember what the prodigal son said when he was, like, living in the pig slop? He had squandered his inheritance and he spent his life, you know, living on prostitutes and, and all that kind of stuff. Luke 15, 16 through 19. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself... When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Okay, the prodigal son said, man, what am I doing here? This is ridiculous. I'm coming to my senses. I'm going to go home and repent. Even if my father doesn't accept me back, at least I can come back to him as a slave and not a son. So, what does this transformation in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar look like? Well, let's look at five aspects of this repentance, of this transformation. What comes off the lips of Nebuchadnezzar that shows us that he's truly repented? Well, first of all, and finally, he praises God. It's not, the, it's not your God, Daniel, or your God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice what he says there. I, verse 34, I bless the Most High and praise and honor him who lives forever. I. This is no longer this distant God who's Daniel's God. It's like, okay, you're Yahweh, God of heaven. You're now my God. I'm confessing you as my God. I'm surrendering to you as my Lord and my God. It's now personal to Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? Now, secondly... He acknowledges God's sovereignty and not his own. Notice what he says here. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Okay. I may have had an earthly dominion. I may have had an earthly kingdom. But it, it pales in comparison to God's eternal and powerful dominion. God is absolutely sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over all I'm not, I may be king in name that God has ordained me over Babylon, but God is the true king of heaven and earth who rules everything. He's got a sovereign, eternal dominion, a kingdom. And then third, he humbly accepts that he's a creation of God, not the creator. He's the potter, God is, not Nebuchadnezzar. He's only the clay. Notice what he says there in verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are recounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. All people are accounted as nothing. Isn't that an amazing statement from this king? I'm nothing compared to this king of heaven. I'm totally dependent upon this God. He's the potter. I'm the clay. I'm the creation. He's the sovereign. I'm not in charge. Reminds me of Isaiah 40, 17 through 18. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? So he praises God. He acknowledges that God is sovereign. He acknowledges his absolute dependence upon this God. And then number four, this is an interesting one. He acknowledges God's right to do whatever he wants. What does he say there? None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nobody can go to God and say, hey, hey, don't do that, God. You're not allowed to do that, God. I, I can control you, God. Nobody can stop God's sovereign decree and say to God, you're not allowed to do that, God. I'm not going to put you in a box, God. I'm not going to allow you to do that. Do anything but that. God, you can't do that. No one can stay. What does it mean to stay God's hand? Nobody can stop what God is sovereignly determined to do. So let me give you some verses that talk about how God has a sovereign right to do what God wants. Okay, Job 42.2, one of my favorite verses from Job. 
Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Can God do all things? Yes. Can his purpose be thwarted? What does thwarted mean? Stopped or stymied or, or altered. If God determines to do it, he's going to do it. Okay? Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. God's counsel stands forever. Psalm 1, 15, 3. Our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. Okay, I mean, God does all he pleases in heaven, but what about earth? Is God sovereign over the earth too, or is it just heaven? <laughs> Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Okay, Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord has purposed, but who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? God's purpose is something nobody can stop. It. God is sovereign. I'm just going to throw this one out here just for you to struggle with. Isaiah 45, 7, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Just throw it out there for you to deal with. Lamentation 3, 37, 38. Who has spoken and it come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? God has the right to do what God pleases because he's absolutely sovereign and he is God. And so the man who was humiliated as the one who thought he was sovereign is now confessing that God alone is the one who's sovereign. And then, what's the last thing that comes out of his mouth? The fifth thing we see that comes out of his mouth, he acknowledged that God is just and right and that all his ways are righteous. Notice what he says there at the very end. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Why? For all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he's able to humble. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do. He could have accused God of being unfair or doing something wrong. Well, I don't know why God made me act like an animal for seven years. That's unfair. He shouldn't have done that. I'm the king. What does he say? God was absolutely right and just in doing what he did. <clears throat> I was prideful and he humbled me. You can never lay the accusation at God that he's being unfair. Okay, so let me ask you the question. Do you want God to be fair with you? Just ask the question. There's a difference between fairness and just. Do you, got one, do you want God to be fair and just with you? If so, what do you deserve? You want God to be merciful. Because what we deserve is his judgment, not his grace. And so we don't want God to be fair, because if we want God to be fair, he would treat us as we deserved. And that is not a good thing. So in Habakkuk 3, verse 2, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your works, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God, be merciful to me. Now, He's praising God for being right and just. And in Revelation chapter 19, after Babylon the harlot has been judged, the voices in heaven are praising God for his righteous ways. Revelation 19, 1 and 2. 
After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Okay, and then the very last thing we see about this king, that he's been transformed, King Nebuchadnezzar. He's been transformed from a prideful megalomaniac to a humble man. What's the very last words off the what's the very last words of King Nebuchadnezzar off the lips of his mouth on the very last time we ever see him in the Bible here speaking in Daniel? Those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. I have been a prideful man, and God has humbled me. And he's right and just to do that. Proverbs 3:34. Toward the scorners he's scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. And then 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, for three chapters, we've been waiting for Nebuchadnezzar to have this transformation, haven't we? You thought after chapter 2 he would be repentant. You'd think after chapter 3 with the fiery furnace he'd be repentant. You'd think after he got the dream here he'd be repentant. And so finally, after being humiliated... God humbles him, and he is a transformed man. Isaiah 66, 2. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, it's interesting when you go back and look at verse 37, when he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Those words, praise, extol, and honor, in the original language, it, it conveys, when you read the original language, it was continual action. It wasn't just like this is a one-time thing. The way the grammar works, it shows that this was a lifestyle of the king. He had truly changed. He, he went the rest of his life praising and extolling and glorifying God. So it was ongoing repentance. It was ongoing faith. It was a transformation. Now, that's the king. Let's ask the question about you and me. The gospel of Jesus Christ demands humility. Now let me ask you a trick question. When it comes to your salvation, what do you contribute to the equation? What do you contribute? And your first answer is going to be what? Nothing. Yes and no. The one thing you contribute is your sin. <laughs> your righteousness is as filthy rags. You, the only thing that you come before God that you can, even the, the best thing you can offer him, righteous deeds is as filthy rags. So the old ham rock of ages expresses it beautifully. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Here's what faith is. Faith is an empty hand of sin grabbing on to Jesus for dear life and receiving him as our only hope. It's an empty hand. You bring nothing to the equation except for your sin and your shame and you come to Jesus in repentance 
in humility. You fly to Christ. You come to Christ. You believe in Christ. And if you don't, as the song says, you die. Unless you're washed by Jesus, you die because we are so foul. We cling to the cross. We come with nothing in our hands. So let me ask you the question, where are your eyes today? Remember where was King Nebuchadnezzar's eyes at first? I did it my way. And after the transformation, his eyes went to heaven. So let me just ask you some questions tonight. Are your eyes on yourself and your achievements and your stuff? Are you standing on the proverbial roof of your own palace looking down at all your achievements and inflated with pride in who you are? Are your eyes fixed on yourself? Or are your eyes fixed elsewhere? Are you looking outside of yourself to the Savior? Are you looking up to the King of Heaven who alone can save you? What does Hebrews 12.2 tell us? Looking to Jesus or fixing our eyes on Jesus founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Where are your eyes? Nebuchadnezzar's eyes at the beginning of the chapter were fixed on himself, and they switched to being fixed on God. And he gave a powerful testimony. This is a testimony. Notice the testimony. This is King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and then he gives this wonderful testimony of who God is and what God has done. What's the greatest miracle that can ever happen to a person? The miracle of the new birth. The miracle of salvation. God takes you from spiritual death and brings spiritual life. God takes you from being dead in sin to being made spiritually alive. God takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. God does this wonderful, internal, supernatural, powerful work in your life to grant you new life. You're a new creation in Christ. That's the greatest miracle that can ever happen, for you to be transformed from one who is an enemy of God to being a child of God. So here's the question. That happened to the king. And he gave testimony to that and praised the Lord and extolled the Lord and talked about how God had humbled him. So here's my question for us tonight. Can you testify, like the king, of what God has done for you? Have you experienced this powerful transformation of repentance and faith like King Nebuchadnezzar has because you've come to the end of your rope and you realize Jesus is the only one that can save you. So, we've got about 15 minutes <laughs> for questions, comments, or snide remarks. What are some thoughts or questions you guys have about this chapter? Oh, we're just clear as mud. Go ahead. Do you think um, that people are still humble today? Yes. Now, let me qualify that. Hebrews chapter 12 says God disciplines those whom he loves, which means that God can and may humble slash humiliate a person today to get their attention. Now, what that looks like, and how God does that, and the extent and the length, God is sovereign over that, and it's going to be different for each person. But I, and it may not be as dramatic as making you go out and live, you know, like a like an animal. But God is can still do a work in someone's life to get their attention in a dramatic way. 
it's not automatic. It's not in every case, but I think God can still do that. Does that make sense? Is it, maybe that's happening. Has that ever happened to anybody here that God like hits you with a two by four to get your attention because you were walking in repentance and he got you, I mean, walking not in repentance and he got your attention? It don't feel good. It doesn't feel good. <laughs> but God does it because he loves us um, if you're truly his child. So the short answer is yes, but there's a lot of different ways I can work myself out. Yes, Brent. And one of my favorite um, quotes from the book is from C.S. Lewis's Power of Pain, where he says, pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Mm-hmm. Pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Chew on that for a little while. Anything else? Other questions? Well, if there are no questions, let us pray for humility. And when God gives us warnings, that we would be repentant and that we would walk in humility before him. So let's pray. So Father, thank you for this time tonight. Lord, it's been interesting to look at King Nebuchadnezzar's transformation. Lord, we're thankful that you did that work of grace. It was dramatic. But you did it in him so that he would come to the point where he would humble himself and realize that you are sovereign. And so, Lord, we want to be humble people. So, Lord, help us to walk in humility. Help us to be those that tremble at your word. Help us to be those that are not arrogant and prideful, but that we are repentant and we do have soft hearts. And that our eyes are not on ourselves, but our eyes are up to heaven, looking at you, Jesus, as the author and finisher of our faith. And so, Lord, we come before you with thankful hearts that you've saved us. Um, Help us just to walk in joy and humility for what you've done for us. Help us to give testimony to others about the grace of God in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.